Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this edition, we're focusing on a new book by my colleague, Michael Peel. It's called The Fabulists, The World's New Rulers, Their Myths and the Struggle Against Them. So what is it that links Donald Trump in the US to Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines and to Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia? And remember, as I say all the time, because we want to say this in front of the media. There they are. Look at all those people. The fake news. I think there's one thing we can say for certain. There's never been a US president with a style quite like that of Donald Trump. And we're up to almost 30 million tests. That means we're going to have more cases. If we didn't want to test, or if we didn't test, we wouldn't have cases. But we have cases because we test. Deaths are dead. But while the boastful and often deceitful style of Donald Trump is something of a novelty in the White House, it's not uncommon elsewhere in the world. In fact, just a few months before Trump came to power, Rodrigo Duterte was elected president of the Philippines. I will not hesitate my soldiers to shoot you. He's a politician famous for his boastfulness, as well as for making crude comments about women and threats of violence. And he's even serenaded Donald Trump, allegedly at the US president's request. It often seems as if a whole new style of politics is on the rise across the world driven by a range of factors from social media to globalization. In my past life as a foreign correspondent, I found that working in different continents encouraged me to think about world trends, connecting events in different parts of the globe. At times, I've worked alongside Michael Peel, linking up with him in the Gulf and in Brussels, where he's currently based. So I started by asking him, who are these leaders he calls the fabulists, and what is it that distinguishes them? Well, the sharpest one-liner that uh, I can probably give as a colleague who described it as a kind of uh, field guide to autocrats and demagogues and their habits and how to deal with them. I've been very lucky in my journalistic career to work in, in four different parts of the world, in Europe, West Africa, the Middle East and Southeast Asia, and that's taken in uh, democracies, dictatorships and, and, and hybrids of the two. And in that time, I've been struck by how, for all the differences of, of history and culture and, and political practice that there are, there are certain common styles in the misleading stories that leaders and, and countries tell themselves. And that's the kind of fabulism of the title. Obviously, deceptive narratives have been around for as as long as human society itself, but it's been turbocharged by social media reach and the way, I think, in in democratic countries that there's a sense in which a kind of shamelessness in politics is seen to pay at the ballot box in a way that it maybe didn't previously. And then the final point is that it's also a book about resistance, people who don't just accept what they're told or ordered to do and sometimes end up paying a very heavy price for that. Yes, indeed. Now, there's a lot in it about incredibly brave people who pay a very heavy price for trying to stick up for 
truth as opposed to fabulism. But I thought one of the interesting points you just made in your answer and in the book is that this is a phenomenon that spans rich traditional democracies, poorer societies, authoritarian countries. So it didn't really feel natural in the past to, say, compare the leader of the Philippines to the president of the United States. But that is an interesting comparison you make in the book with one of the leaders you covered, which is Rodrigo Duterte, the president of the Philippines, who some people have called the Trump of Asia. And you suggest that Trump might be the Duterte of the United States because Duterte was elected before him. So what lessons did you draw from studying Duterte? Well, I think Duterte is is a really interesting example. And really what the Duterte story is in part is a kind of fabulism about rhetoric and and how it can become reality. And um, the common threads are that Duterte in his campaigning and then obviously since he's been in office, a great trademark of his has been apocalyptic language. He pushed this idea that the Philippines is a virtual narco state, that drugs, which are obviously a problem as they are in many countries, wasn't just a problem. It was an existential threat to the survival of the country and that he was the only person who could fix this. And there are obviously resonances there with, with some of the language Trump uses, including in his inauguration speech about American carnage. And that's very striking. And of course, since then, Duterte, who is under fewer institutional checks than Trump in many ways, has been able to prosecute this bloody drugs war in which thousands of people have been killed and which I describe in the book. Another consonant, Trump joked about how he could kill someone in Fifth Avenue and still people would vote for him. Well, Duterte has boasted about actually killing people. And he, you know, sometimes he's denied it, but there's a lot of evidence that when he was mayor of the city of Davao in the southern Philippines, where he really made his name, death squads uh, were rampant and that this was the kind of prototype for his drugs war that he's now rolled out nationally. And and I go to Davao and and talk about this, that these death squads uh, went around killing people in the name of stopping the drugs trade. And Duterte boasted at an official event about how he used to go out on his motorbike in Davao looking for people to kill. And then finally, Trump, another motif of Trump is to call for the jailing of of political opponents. And uh, most notably, when he was campaigning against Hillary Clinton for the presidency, and there were the great chance of lock her up at his rallies. Well, under Duterte, that has actually happened. In June, the journalist uh, Maria Ressa, whose organization Rappla has run stories critical of Duterte, a prison sentence was handed down to her for criminal libel. And in my book, I meet and recount the story of a senator called Leila de Lima, who has for years fought Duterte over his drugs war, first in Duval and then nationally. And she was thrown into jail in 2017. I interviewed her just before she was jailed. And then uh, when she was actually in jail later that year, she's on drugs charges that she says are totally trumped up. Human rights groups consider her a prisoner of conscience. And now, more than three years later, is still uh, languishing in jail awaiting trial. I suppose one could make the case, though, that Although there are similarities in style, actually, these are very different phenomenons because America has checks and balances that so far have actually prevented Mr. Trump's opponents from being jailed, that it is a more robust democracy. You know, there was even an attempt to impeach the president. So how far can you actually push the comparison? Well, you make a very important point here. I'm not saying that, you know, all of these leaders are identical to each other. This is a book about styles of operation and looking for 
parallels and resonances which may be imperfect or incomplete, but which are nonetheless interesting. And obviously, one shouldn't overstate the case. And clearly, what Duterte has been able to do has gone much further than what Trump has done. I mean, the bloods war in the Philippines is horrific. Large numbers of people have died in a very, very systematic way in a short period of time. And the Philippines was a dictatorship as recently as the 1980s. So that's obviously within the living memory of, of, of many Filipinos. At the same time, I think what's interesting is that you look at Duterte as an example of where things can go if they slide too far. And Trump has shown to some degree the way that you can push boundaries in democracies. I mean, for example, the whole impeachment debate, the quid pro quo over Ukraine, the cases we've had where government agencies and officials have been reluctant to contradict him, even when he said things that are clearly incorrect. I mean, that's also very interesting to me because that's kind of eroding a boundary, eroding a norm. And in the long run, that can have a very kind of a decaying effect. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that um, jumped out at me uh, in the book is, again, as you make these initially quite unlikely comparisons, the ones that are actually quite thought-provoking, is that you trace the origins of fake news, not to, as I had thought, the argument between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, but to a leader you covered in West Africa, Charles Taylor of Liberia. Yeah, that is obviously a comparison which came about because of my very distinctive personal experience. More than 15 years ago, I was based in, in Nigeria and I, I covered um, Liberia as, as, as part of that and, and traveled there from time to time. And Charles Taylor was this extraordinary figure, a former warlord who had taken power and then won, obviously, very dubious elections in Liberia, but had used those to assert his power over the country and legitimize his rule. And one of the elements of Charles Taylor, who was a former government tax official, was that he could speak very persuasively. And he was an example of, if you're going to tell a tall story and you're going to go false, then go big. And he had that kind of operatic, expansive style that tried to sweep away all doubts and questions before it. And to a degree, it worked. I mean, he was a warlord who oversaw unspeakable atrocities as a military commander and then terrible repression as a leader of the country once he won. But he managed to persuade people like uh, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter that he was a man of peace and, and religion. Mr. Carter later recanted, but for some years, Taylor was able to pull off this idea that he was a lay minister and a man of God. And we're talking here about the late 1990s and the early 2000s um, before social media. But the other thing that was very striking now in retrospect to me is that Taylor really got the idea of memes. And he had these strange and rather unsettling billboards that were littered around the capital of Monrovia. And they had sort of large murals, which were sort of warnings to the population and indeed to visiting foreigners, including journalists. And one of them, which was on the main airport road, was this vast billboard that showed a journalist spreading fake information and the destructive effects that had on the population. And it was titled, Unbalanced News is Also a human rights abuse. And as I say in the book, the also it was a kind of wink, sort of saying almost, well, we know that we abuse human rights, but so do you guys. So you can't really trust anyone, can you? And it, it seemed like a classic sort of autocratic trope, bringing everyone down to your level. You know, I don't pretend to be perfect, but everyone else is as bad as me. And in that way, you get to wield power and discredit everyone in the minds of the public. More recently, you've covered the Middle East and Europe, 
talk about Europe where you are at the moment in a second, but Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who was a figure who, again, also had many people in the West very impressed by him. And yet his reputation took a considerable dive, to put it mildly, after the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I get the impression, however, that you had always been sceptical of him, partly because of covering Saudi Arabia up close and talking to some of his opponents. Yes, my experience in, in Saudi Arabia was before Mohammed bin Salman came to power, but obviously a lot of the themes which we would later see about repression have come out since the Khashoggi murder. And in that era, I met activists who were not radicals, and they were not even pro-Western. They just made very basic points about how this country's got an awful lot of oil, but there's no transparency and no political accountability about it. And that's because it's an absolute monarchy and, and that needs to change. And yet, even these sort of fairly unexceptional, and most people would say reasonable demands, led them to be cracked down on. And, and so... Really, the Mohammed bin Salman story, my, my suspicion when he came to power was simply that you know he was an, an absolute monarch in an absolute monarchy where there is zero accountability. And why should somebody who's never really been held accountable for anything in their lives suddenly adhere to sort of norms of reasonable behavior? And so I think that he was a figurehead, but the structure beneath him didn't seem to have changed very much. And one very telling sort of example is how the whole thing about allowing women to drive came about. Now, obviously, that's a progressive social change that everyone can agree with. And, you know, it's important to acknowledge, as I do in the book, that you know there are sort of social changes to do with mixing of men and women in society, the kind of social events that are allowed that are progressive. And yet, there was always a kind of darker underlay in that activists who had campaigned to allow women to drive found themselves persecuted. And I recount the case of Lujana Al-Hathlul, who was thrown into jail, and it's been alleged that she's been horribly abused and tortured in jail. Why was that? Well, it seems to be because the authorities in Saudi Arabia, led by Mohammed bin Salman, didn't want to share any of the credit. So you had this ghastly situation where activists who had advocated for a social change that the rulers then took up ended up being persecuted and abused for their activism, even though it was entirely in line with the official view. Michael, you're now based in the European Union, and you may perhaps have felt when you got to Brussels that this style of politics, the fabulism, was being left behind. But you then find that you're covering a story in Malta, the smallest country in the EU, which really seems to fit the pattern. Can you explain that? Sadly, my first big assignment when I returned to Europe and was based in Brussels was to cover the aftermath of the murder of the journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia in Malta in October of 2017. And really what the Maltese case showed was it's partly a story of you know, a small island state where political corruption had run rampant for many years. But it's also a bigger story about, I think, the myths that Europeans often have about themselves and about this idea of European values that Europe, is, as a senior European commissioner, put it in an interview to me a couple of weeks ago, world champions on, on human rights. And to me, that seems a rather complacent way of looking at things. And this is also something that's come out much more recently in the way that the protests of the killing of George Floyd by police in the US have spilled over into Europe and stoked a debate about racism here, which has, I think, surprised people who were complacent and felt that Europe was somehow sort of superior to the US in this way. But the overall idea that there are certain European values that should be spread to the world is a narrative that I really tried to explore through 
the example of, of Malta and other places to say, well, this case seems to go directly against that narrative. Here is a journalist being killed in the heart of the European Union. Several years later, the case still hasn't been solved. You have this situation where Joseph Muscat, the previous Maltese prime minister, was forced to resign over the case in 2020. But still, the huge questions over the alleged involvement of people connected to the highest level of politics in Malta in the murder have not been resolved. And so it really goes to the heart of how sort of grotesque it is that Europe goes abroad and dishes out sort of lectures about human rights and about the way it does things without acknowledging the serious flaws in things that are happening in European countries themselves. And just to pick up on that, you end the book coming home looking at the UK and Brexit as, in your view, an example of fabulism. But I must say that on a personal level, one of the few times where I thought, well, actually, maybe the Brexiters have a point was precisely when in the middle of the Brexit negotiations, the UK was negotiating with the presidency of the European Union, which at the time was held by Malta. And indeed, Prime Minister Muscat was leading the negotiations. And it did seem that this image of the EU as this exemplar was rather seriously challenged by that. Yes, absolutely. And and in the book, the chapter on Brexit, the point that I try to make is to say that the way that Brexit has been cast and used and the way it has been done so chaotically and untransparently has really kind of destabilised the country and set people against each other in a way which perhaps has sort of obscured the way in which there are quite a lot of common beliefs in British society about the sort of social goods and the way you know we should have access to good employment conditions, healthcare and schools and, and so on. And the central point that I make is the way that this narrative has become rampant that Brexit was essentially a revolt of people who um, had been impoverished and disenfranchised, particularly in former industrial areas and were rebelling against the wealthy elite. Now, it's effective because there is an element of truth in it. And clearly, you know, there were many parts of the country like that, which did vote in large numbers for Brexit. But actually, if you look at the bedrock of Brexit demographics, it's a lot more complicated than that. And there's clearly a very large constituency of pro-Brexit support of people who actually are you know, financially comfortable, whom life has been quite good to. And you can't really explain what's going on while ignoring that group who are actually the bedrock of the Brexit vote. And so what I try to do is to explore that a little bit more. And I go and interview the old headmaster of my primary school, who's in his 90s now, and chat to him in some detail to um, sort of illustrate this point and to try and tease out some of these questions. And in particular, what I see as a kind of tragedy of Brexit, which is not so much leaving the EU itself, but rather the way that It has left the country of Britain, my country, divided and set against itself in a way that I think very few people, whatever side of the Brexit vote they were on, can welcome. And last question then, I mean, you end on that point in the book, very interesting as it is, it's also a little depressing read. Um, Can you offer us uh, any hope for the future that things, the style of politics, the fabulism can be combated? Well, yes, I mean, I think that despite everything, I'm still an optimist and I've had the privilege of being in many countries where people have, you know, fought for change and, and sometimes succeeded against big odds. So this is not at all meant to be a council of despair. And I think that 
you know, we do see examples where changes have been made. I mean, I'm going to the example of Romania, where I report on how uh, Laura Covesia, an anti-corruption prosecutor, was under pressure from the government and um, in the end was kicked out of office. Well, fast forward, and she's now the first ever head of a, a pan-European prosecutor's office and the leader of the ruling party in Romania, um, whose interests she threatened, has, has been jailed for corruption. So that's a sort of micro example of, of how the wheel can turn. But on a more macro level, I think the pandemic has really brought a lot of these issues into very sharp focus because you now have a situation where, as a New York Times headline memorably put it, you, you can't gaslight a virus. And this is a challenge that can't be dealt with the politics of symbolism and narrative. It shows the limits of doing politics according to the world as you spin it rather than the, the world as it is. We haven't had any big elections yet to test how this shakes out politically. And obviously, it will vary from country to country. But people may conclude that an age of crisis um, requires leaders who are at least honest about what's at stake, whether it's on health or economic reform or combating climate change. Okay, Michael Peel, thank you very much indeed. That was Michael Peel, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you'd like some inspiration about what to read this summer, I invite you to take a look at the FT's annual Summer Books series, where our writers and critics have chosen their favourites of 2020 so far. Find over 200 possible books to add to your summer reading list at ft.com slash summerbooks2020. And please join us again next week you can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.